reading this morning comes from 1 Kings and it starts on page 534 of the Church Bibles. Um, It's chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, and chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. The Lord appears to Solomon. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all that he had desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did, and do all I command and and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David, your father, when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you, and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshipping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. And over to chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. Actually separate the pages. The Queen of Sheba visits Solomon. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the Queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the setting of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. 
Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Hiram's ships brought gold from Ophir, and from there they brought great cargoes of Ormagwood and precious stones. The king used Ormagwood to make supports for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace, and to make harps and lyres for the musicians. So much Ormagwood has never been seen in has never been imported or seen since that day. King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. And... uh... It's good to see you, and if you're visiting here, particular welcome to you, and um, the kids are in today, so mums and dads, I take my hat off to you, I mean if I had a hat, I'd take it off, Um, so thank you, and for the rest of us, we do want church to be a place which welcomes children, so if if there's a little bit of noise today, uh, grin and bear it, and uh, we'll pray that God will help us to concentrate as we go, let's do that. Father in heaven, thank you. that we are the family of God. Uh, Thank you that Jesus welcomed children. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us as your family to to support all those with with kids and rejoice that they're here. We pray, God, that you'd speak to us now. And please steady our minds. And uh, please give us attention. And help me to be clear. In Jesus' name, amen. So for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. That's how Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? Isn't it? No. Strangely, because, I mean, that's the ending we've been taught, right? But the Lord's Prayer, as taught by Jesus, doesn't end with those words. In Matthew's Gospel, the Lord's Prayer ends with, deliver us from evil. In Luke's Gospel, it ends with, lead us not into temptation. But Christians have been... uh, have been ending the Lord's Prayer with those extra words since the first century, right? Why? Why? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Because of God, because of David, because of Solomon, because of the link between the kingdom of Solomon and the kingdom of God, because how great the kingdom of Solomon was, which shines a light on how great the kingdom of God is. In fact, when David was handing over the kingdom to Solomon, David prayed Words just like the ending of the Lord's Prayer. So 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, Lord, is the, great, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Yours be the kingdom, the power and the glory. 
God desires this. God desires that we desire it as well so that we would pray it as something which we earnestly want. Do we? Do we? Of course, we know about power and glory, don't we? Power and glory are immensely attractive to us. Imagine the power to be able to say, unpack the dishwasher, and voila, it's done. Does any parent here have this power? Honestly, does anyone have that power? Well, you don't have the glory, do you? (laughs) Okay. Kids, imagine the power to be able to say no when your parents ask you to do something. I mean, you think that you have that power. You actually don't. But you use the power, don't you, of pretending. Your parents say, unpack the dishwasher. I can't hear. And you pretend long enough until someone else does it. Dear, oh dear. Maybe we live for the power at work of being able to say, I want this done, and then it happens. You know, for more than a year, I was the acting senior pastor of Trinity City for the first time. In 14 years, you know, I've been an underling. Suddenly I had power. I could make decisions, and voila, they happened. It was amazing. Glory. Glory. Maybe, kids, you live for the glory of coming first. Maybe parents... You live for the glory of being able to say, see that kid who came first? (laughs) It's my kid. Um, The glory of career advancement. The glory of knowing that people came back just because of you. Maybe it's a different glory you seek. Maybe it's owning a home such that would appear in um, SA Life. You know, maybe it's the glory of being popular. In subtle ways, we long for power and glory. And yet, in the Lord's Prayer, we ascribe to God, not ourselves, the power and the glory. Yours, not mine. Yours, not ours. Yours be the power and the glory. So what does it mean, and do we want it? And if we want God to get the power and the glory, must we live in hovels and never be proud of our kids getting first or never seek commendation at work or obedience at home? No. So then how should we approach power and glory in the kingdoms of our own lives? We need the wisdom of Solomon. And 1 Kings chapters 9 to 10. Okay, remember where we're up to. In the first eight chapters, we've seen Israel in her golden age under Solomon, the kingdom of God here on earth. And that's a picture pointing to us the kingdom Jesus will usher in when he returns. If you wanted to put a title to chapters 1 to 8, it would be, Yours is the Kingdom. Right? Yours is the Kingdom, Solomon. In chapters 9 to 10, we have the power and the glory. The power of Solomon's building projects, chapter 9, the glory of his wisdom, chapter 10. Yours is the Kingdom, chapters 1 to 8, the power and the glory, chapters 9 to 10, forever and ever. No, that's chapter 11, that's next week, right? Because next week we'll see the golden age cease and God tear the kingdom away from Solomon. Now this has to grab us. Here is the wisest man in the world who spectacularly failed. Why? Here up front and close is the account of what went wrong. Everything else in 1 and 2 Kings happened because of what went wrong here. These chapters teach us about being wise to power and glory. 
First up is power, chapter 9. Solomon was a powerful king. The common thread in this chapter are all his building projects. After building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, he built another palace for Pharaoh's daughter, his wife. And then he built the supporting terraces to the temple. He built the wall of Jerusalem. He built the cities of Hazor, Megiddo, and Giza, verse 17. He built up lower Bethethron, Balath, Tadmor in the desert within his land. It's a ring of fortified cities, right? Right throughout his land. As well as all his store cities and the towns for his chariots and horses. Whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and throughout all the territory, he ruled. Very impressive, very powerful. He achieved it through a forced and conscripted labour force. Not of the Israelites, they were his fighting men, his government officials, his charioteers. But verse 20, the labour force comprised all those whom David hadn't wiped out. That is the previous inhabitants of the land who were still alive. Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Solomon conscripted them. He made them slaves. That's how the cities were built. Such was his power and control of the land. But why stop there? Why be limited by land? Verse 26 Solomon also built ships on the shore of the Red Sea. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his men, sailors who knew the sea, to serve in the fleet with Solomon's men. They sailed to Ophir and brought back 16 tons of gold, which they delivered to Solomon. So by the end of chapter 9, we see a man whose power is staggering. How do we view such power? The answer is with wisdom. I want you to see that the writer of 1 Kings gives us not one but three perspectives through which to see Solomon's power. All perspectives are given to us so that we would be wise about power. The first perspective is that of Solomon himself. Verse 1, Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all that he had desired to do. From Solomon's point of view... He simply did what his heart desired. People in power do that, don't they? Most of them don't actually look past that for another perspective. But wisdom would dictate that you do. Because there are two more perspectives given to us that we might be wise. The second perspective is that of the Lord. The Lord appears to Solomon a second time. Now the first time Solomon's power came to him as a gift. But now the tone is different. There is warning. If you walk before me uprightly and with integrity and do what I've commanded, I will keep you and your sons on this throne. But if you or your sons turn away from me and go off to serve other gods and worship them, I'll cut Israel off from the land I've given them and I will reject this temple. Israel will become a byword, will become an object of ridicule among all the peoples. All who pass by will appall and scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and the temple? And people will say, because they have forsaken the Lord their God. This is a different take on Solomon's power. Yes, Solomon was powerful. He did what his heart desired. But there was the Lord and he was under the Lord. And the Lord desires that Solomon desire him first and foremost. And here we see for ourselves that from God's perspective, more than power, it's obedience from the heart, which is what's important. The third perspective the writer wants us to see is that of Hiram, the king of Tyre. 
Hiram had supplied Solomon with all the cedar and gold. So verse 10, halfway through Solomon's reign, 20 years in, after he's finished the palace and the temple, Solomon gives Hiram 20 towns as payment. Verse 12. But when Hiram went from Tyre to see the towns that Solomon had given him, he wasn't pleased with them. What kind of towns are these you've given me, my brother? He asked. And he called them the land of Kabul, which means good for nothing, a name they have to this day. There's a perspective on Solomon's power. It's not exactly a ringing endorsement. From the perspective of Hiram, on the receiving end, it's fairness, it's justice, which he values more than power. So there's three perspectives given to us through which we're to evaluate power. It's one thing to do what our heart desires. Now, that's a gift from God to Solomon. But from God's perspective, power counts for nothing if there's no obedience, if our hearts, uh, in our hearts, sorry, we've sold him for another person or another God. And thirdly, from the perspective of those on the receiving end of power, those under us, it's fairness by which we will be judged. Now, some of us have power in our jobs. Some of us employ other people. Some of us are in authority over others. It matters enormously to God that we love him first and foremost. It matters enormously to those under us that we are fair in our payments or our acknowledgements for their work done. James chapter 5. Listen, you rich people. The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. If we have power over people, we must treat those under us with fairness. If we have power at home, in our homes, that is, we're parents over our children, what will matter into the end, in the end is whether our parents see people who are fair, and people who love God. Because if we love God, we will be fair, actually. Because God values this. Because in the treatment of our children, instead of being oppressive, we will remember that our children, our sons and daughters, are also our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that perspective changes the way you parent. You see, turn from him fail to love God, then we run the danger of making either our children our God, which is very unfair to them because which child can live up to that expectation? Or we will make ourselves as God and they have to serve us. That, that also isn't fair. Ephesians 5, where Paul tells fathers how they're to behave, it avoids both errors. Fathers, do not exasperate your children by making ourselves God or by loading them with expectations to perform because they've somehow become our God. Don't exasperate your children, but bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Keep the Lord God. Love him first. Heartfelt obedience to him. We have to be wise about power, and we can because through one kings, we actually are given greater wisdom than Solomon. Solomon only was able to see through his eyes. But 
God is showing us here that we're to see ourselves through the eyes of what God has said in his word and also the eyes of those under us. Do that and you'll be wise about power. What of glory? Chapter 10. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And she arrives at Jerusalem with this great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold, precious stones. She comes to Solomon and she talks with him about everything she's got on her mind. And Solomon answers all of her questions. It would have been great to be a fly on the wall, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Explain to me how wind begins. Explain to me the process of photosynthesis. Where does the hail come from? Why do men twitch their leg at the dining table so often? Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he'd built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she's overwhelmed. She said to the king, well, everything I've heard about you is true, but I didn't believe it till I saw with my eyes. But actually, what I'd heard wasn't even the half of it. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded anything that I'd heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you to hear your wisdom. It's astounding. Because of this, in verse 10, the queen of Sheba presents her gifts, four and a half tons of gold, more spices than had ever been seen, and precious stones. Sheba, by the way, is Yemen. So you went, she went a long way to hear Solomon's wisdom. Now, this is glory, right? Add to that the gold from Hiram's ships in verse 11, the wood for making harps, Solomon's yearly receipt of 25 tons of gold in verse 14, not including that which he gets from the merchants and traders and the Arabian kings in verse 15. Then add to that all that Solomon made with the gold, 500 gold shields, verse 16, a great throne inlaid with ivory, overlaid with gold, two lions either side, 12 lions on the steps up to the throne. No nation had ever seen anything like this before. All his goblets and cutlery were gold, verse 21. Silver was so common it had no value. Imagine that. Add to that the fleet of trading ships, which came back every three years with gold, silver, ivory, apes and baboons. We can see, verse 23, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. His was the glory, you see, because of his wisdom. The evidence of his glory was the stream of people who kept coming to hear him from all over the world, bringing silver, gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses and mules. Some of us have grown rich, materially speaking, from our wisdom. Through what we've learnt, you know, achieved a certain status, own a house, maybe befitting for someone of our status... How are we to be wise with the material glory that came to us through our wisdom? Again, there's two perspectives given in this chapter and both must be seen for us to be wise about riches. The first is from the Queen of Sheba. After seeing all that she's seen and after hearing all of Solomon's answers, the Queen does something very surprising. I say surprising because when I see someone who's rich through their wisdom, I'm tempted to praise them. 
But look at who the queen praises, verse 9, chapter 10. Praise be to the Lord your God. Now, why does she do that? Because of what she sees. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne in Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Wisdom and the material benefits of wisdom come from the Lord. And therefore, God deserves the glory, right? Is that our perspective as well? If it is, then of course you'd praise him, wouldn't you? More than that, we'd give back to God from our wealth, like the Queen of Sheba who brings her wealth as a gift for the king of God's kingdom. Isaiah looked forward to the day, you know, when wealth of the, na- the wealth of the nations would once again be brought to Israel's king. In Matthew 2, wise men from the nations come to bring to Jesus, the king of Israel, costly gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then in Revelation 21, we're told that in heaven, in a new Jerusalem paved with gold, the kings of the earth will bring their splendor and their glory and honor into it and lay it before the Lamb. What the Queen of Sheba offers to Solomon in her gifts is an example of what will happen, of what is right and fitting will happen. And therefore what is right and fitting for us to do, that is to bring to Jesus our material riches and to lay them at his feet. Now that may translate into giving to church, but I'm not just sort of singing for my supper here. It's much broader It's to realise there's nothing more fitting to do than to bring our wealth and use it for God's glory. Like being righteous and just in all your business dealings, like using your home for hospitality and evangelism. Like when a great event is put on, like by City Bible Forum or something, buying, using your wealth to buy a ticket for yourself and other people who you will bring. Evangelism costs time and money. If you're not prepared to spend time or money, you'll never do any evangelism. But just get over it, right? It costs time and money. Okay, we've accepted that. Let's do it. What, a bet, what better way to use your money than for that? Like helping support someone at church through Bible college. Like giving to CMS to support the gospel going out around the world. And then there's other, of course, there's other things, aren't there? You only have to begin thinking for five seconds before you see the possibilities. The perspective the Queen of Sheba brings is that God gives the wisdom and he deserves the praise from our mouths and our riches. The second perspective on Solomon's glory comes from God. (coughs) Back in Deuteronomy, God had anticipated the moment when Israel would have a king And God laid down the ground rules in his word. In chapter 17, he says, The king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. That is God's perspective. He laid it down in his word. Horses, wives, 
silver and gold. This now paints Solomon in a new light. When we read verse 26, our alarm bells start ringing. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. Oh no! Verse 27, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Oh no! Verse 28, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. This is bad. And then verse, chapter 11, verse 1, King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Disaster. The three things Solomon are not to, was not to accumulate, horses, foreign wives, silver and gold. Three things which Solomon accumulates are horses, foreign wives, silver and gold. What's the issue? The issue is our hearts. The issue is what we worship and therefore what we make to be God. Before I came to Adelaide, I was just out of Bible college, just cutting my teeth as an assistant minister in a church. And the minister's wife warned me about temptation. She said... She'd seen several ministers fall by the wayside and she said, it's always the same thing, Chris. It's gold, it's glory, or it's girls. And then she said, which one will it be for you? I thought, far out, I like all three of those. (laughs) Um, You know, gold, setting our heart on accumulating riches. Glory, setting our hearts on achieving acclaim and high status. Girls, setting our hearts on gratifying our lust. When we swap our first love for God for something else, we swap our God. And Solomon, who Solomon gave his heart to mattered. He was the king. What he did set the tone for the whole country. If Solomon swapped his allegiance for God, God would cut Israel off from the land. Yes, yours is the kingdom, Solomon, the power and the glory, but forever and ever, no. We're going to look at that more closely next week. Solomon's power and glory spelt disaster for the whole nation. Everything went downhill because of him. And that, that is why I love Jesus. And that is why we look to him as our hope. He used his power to serve. He exchanged his glory for the glory of a cross. You know, Satan offered Jesus untold power and glory, didn't he? All the kingdoms of this world, if only Jesus bowed down and worshipped him. Jesus maintained his love, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he did, he did. Instead of accumulating horses, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Instead of accumulating gold, and imagine just how much gold he could have had with all those powers to heal. I mean, he could have been very, very rich. Instead of doing that, Jesus remained poor so that he could give himself wholeheartedly to his father's work. Instead of gaining women for himself, and he could have, because there's nothing more attractive to a woman than a man who's strong, who's just, and who's compassionate. Instead of using that as a lever for his own ends, he healed women. He reached out to them. 
He restored them. And then he went and he laid down his life for them. Which is why it's right that we desire Jesus to be glorified above anyone else. It's why it's right that we say yours be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Because he deserves it. Paul says in Philippians 2, it was because he made himself nothing in this life and he humbled himself and became a servant and obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's because he did that that God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And the result is that when he returns in the future, he will come in clouds with power and with great glory and every eye will see and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, not because we're forced but because everyone will acknowledge him. It's just right that he deserved the glory. Which means that for us now in the present, being wise about power and glory means that we must long to see Jesus' power and glory above our own. You know, in our lives and in our hearts, to make it our anthem, yours be the kingdom. Not Solomon's, not mine. Yours be the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever. That is wise because the beauty of Christ, you know, is that he doesn't just keep his power and glory, he shares it. He shares it now. In 2 Peter 1 we're told Jesus' divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And he'll share it then. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. We're told the Lord's people will judge the world. Power and glory. Paul says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, on the day Jesus comes, Jesus will be glorified in his holy people. That blows my mind. It's not just he who will be glorified. We will be glorified in him. You see, you give him the power and the glory, he shares it. So now in the present, we're to be wise to power and glory. To long for Jesus' power and glory above all things. And what power and glory we have? Well, power we use to serve. What glory we seek be his, not ours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you do give us power and glory in our lives in different measures. Some of us here have a lot. Some of us don't have much at all. But we ask, Heavenly Father, that that which we have, which has been given to us by you, we would give you praise, and we do praise you, but we would also use it for your glory, for your power. In Jesus' name, amen.